0: I was just watching it for my leisure (laughs) it was like I love claymation I love Jordan Peele I love Henry Selick so I was like sure I'm going to watch this film and then (laughs) halfway through not even halfway through it was like 15 minutes in and I was like wait a second
1: Of course I'm gonna learn something. <laughs> the ratings that had themes, it's like what's wrong with the themes? Like it's a like it's like animated drawing Peel show and then minutes and I was like, oh <laughs> those themes. <laughs> of course, but also <laughs> why
0: i'm gabe and i'm pascal and we're and we're (laughs) talking about spooky stuff surprise um happy end of the year for our ghoul scouts and for those listening we are the media literacy show from a horror lens where we explore the real life systemic reasons behind our cinematic fears and Today, we got a little bit of a twist on our usual episodes. Um, so you probably saw last week, we were on break. Kat has a family emergency that they're working through. So we are blessed <laughs> because uh, just so happens that we were planning to interview our wonderful guest today anyway. And I was like, well, you could just co-host it with me. And they said yes. So <laughs> welcome, Pascal Valet to uh, The Ghouls Next
1: Door. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. This is my second time on Ghouls Next Door. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with institutionalized populations for the past decade, and last time I was on, we discussed the representation of disability in horror, so I'm super excited to talk about another institutionalized population in horror with you.
0: Yes, yes. It was such a great um, series that was way back uh, in the Wayback Machine of pre video work. And it was one of our like first real, um, series that we were very passionate about. It was our representation series. And so we talked to a bunch of people just about these different communities being represented in horror. And that has since become such an integral part of what we talk about and the things that we've learned and discussed with you in that episode come through all the time when we're watching things like it just adds to our media literacy, like notebook of like, okay, how is this person being portrayed or, or how could this be better? What does this say about this community to see them? represented in this way and i really appreciate that like i love learning (laughs) our our listeners love learning and um if you haven't listened to it uh it is one of those earlier episodes i will find the number for you but it is our um disabilities episode and you were also in our first midsommar
1: episode that's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> also talking about disability representation, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: which was a big problem in
1: that week. Yes.
0: <laughs> even in recovering Midsommar, that was a big thing that we kept. We were like, okay, we we can totally see some of the the bigger ideas and the ways that like the message that you were trying to bring and we can acknowledge those things and we can also acknowledge a lot of the very problematic (laughs) like there's a lot to unpack and things that we were still very much upset about even with a second watch through that just stay true when you're when you're watching
1: it from that specific lens absolutely more than one thing can be true at the same time (laughs) yes that's such a, such
0: a cool thing it's like we have this film and also really hate what's happening like or like we could love this film and what to like I absolutely hate the person who made it like, it's also allowed um <laughs> we are complex beings um which is great because you know this uh haunted series was really such a pleasure it is going on far longer than i was expecting but that's just kind of how <laughs> things happen with us um you know we've covered haunted people where we talked about like grief and loss we talked about mm-hmm. haunted homes and like sunken cities we talked about haunted towns this one's also kind of like a haunted town in some way uh and it's it's been a journey and it's been really emotional <laughs> and and i'd say the biggest thing with with us this series has been that a lot of it's been unexpected like we you know mm-hmm. have this this thesis <laughs> that we walk into every episode with we're like of course we know this and then we're exploring it and we're like wow wait <laughs> the this this goes deeper than that and um today's episode will be about haunted prisons which is essentially just prisons period they are all haunted and i think We always knew it was going to be a heavy thing, which is why it kept getting pushed back the way that it did. And we definitely wanted to invite other voices to be a part of it. Um, Next week, you'll hear interviews that we have um, with people who work with people who are incarcerated and someone who is currently incarcerated. So you can really hear what those stories are, because that was a really important part of this series was... Talking about these experiences and these people. And so it's been a long journey to get here, essentially. And so um, I'm really appreciative that you're here, Pascal. <laughs> We're excited to, to hear and to learn. Um, the fact section is like my favorite. <laughs> As it is, I'm always just like, what? in the background, I'm like, whoa, what? Oh my God. Oh, why? Um <laughs> Stop the world. What are we doing? Um and You'll you'll hear the mess of what my my film section is because what a journey. I didn't have a film section until like a week before we did this episode. Oh no. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know what I'm gonna cover. (laughs) Um, and then I found just stumbled upon something and it was so interesting. I was like, wait, whoa, (laughs) the universe has intervened and given me what I needed. Um before, before I hop into my section, um, Pascal, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, the work that you do, and um, what uh, lens and, and information you're bringing to this conversation?
1: Yeah, so again, my name is Pascal. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I've been, uh, again, working with particularly in disability justice for the past decade. Um, I work at a nonprofit called Liberty Resources. We advocate with people with disabilities to help them get the services they need. In the community and that includes people with psychiatric disabilities um, and I recently got my MPH my master's in public health and I did my thesis project on the unmet health needs of people who are incarcerated at the Philadelphia county jail so while the results of that project are a little bit tangential to our conversation today I am going to be talking about some of the research that I did um, not only for that project but around the population who are incarcerated in philadelphia because philadelphia is the most incarcerated city in the most incarcerated country on the planet
0: wow see facts lit i didn't even know um and that's why you know when we were talking um there was this discussion of is this going to be like a, a a bigger net of like are we talking about Our incarceration system period here in america or you know because your focus was so heavily on philadelphia is that the focus and i welcomes that because i think that really blends into our haunted towns aspect like there are so many uh, pieces of philadelphia that are haunted by our incarceration system or just like our criminal justice system and how it has oppressed or harmed very specific populations and you know stifled growth and prosperity. Um, I'm sure in the future we will do a move episode on the move bombing like I have no doubt. And so um, thank you. <laughs> for for coming in and and speaking on the the specific issues and um, bringing the the pieces that you found. And I hope people listen. And as always in our show notes, we'll have a lot of our resources and links. And I will also be including different ways that you can help different campaigns that are happening here in Philadelphia and uh, in other places as well. Um, Next week, you'll have specific work uh, links to help the people that I am talking to. And so we can try to do what we can uh, to change this system that is incredibly horrific.
1: Yeah, when the system doesn't keep us safe, we have to keep ourselves safe and each other safe. So that sort of mutual aid and community is really important.
0: Yeah. All right. <laughs> let me let me hop into my section. Uh, I know I'm always dreading talking about this. It's so so horrible. So horrible topic. It, in it, like that's why it was such it really was such a hard time to find content like we have covered you know documentaries before and so that was definitely something we were gonna do um and I'll definitely talk on that but it's like no one's no one's done it really (laughs) and there's a lot of reasons why like a part of me is really thankful for that because it's like who could tell those stories but people who are directly involved and so I hope that it does inspire people who might be able to use horror as like a tool to to educate folks in a way that's like, you know, accessible the way that like Jordan Peele can do. (laughs) So um, let's check it out. So today, very surprisingly, I'm going to be talking about Wendell and Wilde, which just came out. um, And again, I was just watching it for my leisure. (laughs) It was like, I love Claymation, I love Jordan Peele, I love Henry Selle- Selleck. So I was like, sure, I'm gonna watch this film. And then <laughs> halfway through, not even halfway through, it was like 15 minutes in, and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> of
1: course i'm gonna learn exactly. something the ratings that had themes it's like what's wrong with the themes like it's like when it's like animated jordan pio show and then 50 minutes in i was like oh <laughs> <those themes." laughs> of course but also <laughs> what um so wendell and wild
0: is about two scheming demon brothers wendell and wild enlist the aid of 13 year old cat Elliot to summon them to the land of the living which is super deceptive <laughs> like, there's like that's, yeah, that's what it's about. But is that what it's about? Um, <laughs> and it is directed by Henry Selick, did Coraline, um, written by him, Jordan Peele, and it's based on a book by Clay McLeod Chapman. And uh, I want to read the book now. <laughs> but I, it was just something I was really excited to watch just because I really do enjoy claymation I think it's a, a wonderful medium and I love the stylings of Coraline and we've covered that previously it's like it is our most watched <laughs> listened to episode which is really crazy I don't even remember what we said in it um it's just a popular film right and so this one was in in uh harm of being swept under the rug like it was something that people were not talking about nearly enough um and it I mean coming out the same year as nope I can see people being like oh we just did a Jordan Peele but it's like but this isn't just Jordan Peele <laughs> like people need to realize that so um definitely definitely watch it as always there will be some. there will be spoiler alerts uh throughout the my section but um it's it's such a quick watch. You'll enjoy yourself. It's on Netflix. Take a look. Um, but what I found when doing research on this episode was that there are remarkably no horror movies overtly about prison. There are, you know, films about being in prison. There's films that have themes you can connect to being imprisoned, but there's nothing that's like, this is about... <laughs> being in prison, and i found that really interesting because horror is a genre that is often used to criticize real world horrors and i was expecting to find no end to content options because of how intense and horrifying this specific topic is i was like of course someone out there has it i just haven't seen it yet and furthermore horror isn't a genre that shies away from truly horrifying issues but it is hauntingly quiet about this specific one And there are plenty of films about prisons. And it could be argued that the documentaries about our prison system are horror on their own because they are. (laughs) And we have, you know, covered them before. We even interviewed the director of Belly of the Beast, which is a horrifying documentary about the California prisons that were forcibly sterilizing women of color. Um, We've even covered documentaries on our show before. It isn't always narrative work, thinking of the one-child... A uh, documentary that we covered for population control, not like <laughs> it was partnered with a narrative film, but that was one of our biggest parts was was talking about that specific documentary. Um, and we worked really hard to find one. To talk about specifically. And the thing about the horrors of America's mass incarceration system is that there is no one film that can truly cover it. It's a very complex system. There's so many parts of it that you can unpack and talk about. I can't imagine one film being able to do that. And so there's, you know, Ava DuVernay's 13th does an amazing job of exploring the thesis behind Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration and the Age of Colorblindness, and both cover the racist and oppressive systems we find uh, a large chunk of our population to be victims of. But even that felt like we were not getting the full picture. And even the film that we're talking about today also doesn't get the full picture. All of that's to say (laughs) there's, this episode will most likely have another one to follow. I can't imagine us not recovering the issues and talking about other ones. I was gonna go through um, the, totally blanking on the name of the documentary series now, but there was like the three different documentaries about the boys who were like goth and got, um, arrested for the murder of these young boys and it was literally just because they were like the edgy goth kids
1: oh during satanic panic mm-hmm. uh yes yeah. and A highly so, logical and rational period of our of our traditions. like Sorry. oh of
0: course they listened to marilyn manson so of course they did this murder and they were like 14 and so I mean, marilyn
1: manson is Abuser, yes obviously yes However, <laughs> but
0: listening is, to yes. them does not mean these yes. children <laughs> who don't know that <laughs> like I, it was yeah satanic panic for sure and there's three films actually about like the like the team trying to work to uh combat them and like the their trials and and show that there was clearly not enough evidence and that it was them just judging this population and then um they eventually got out like I think that's the third one but it really was one of those like films about the kind of like the armchair sleuths of the world because they're like the first true crime like they had like a website for these boys to like try to get them out and it was like The birth of people actually being on the internet and doing that. Love it. And so I wanted, that was like my, the first thing I was going to do was cover that, actually. And then I was like, I definitely want to do a Satanic Panic episode. um, But I also felt like those three, the people, the three boys who were arrested um, are white boys. And so that also wasn't telling all of the stories Mm -hmm. and also wasn't telling the stories of the people I know. And so- (laughs) Again, I just want to explain how difficult it was to find anything to cover. So um hopefully this plus next week's episode will be a good introduction for you to really start questioning why we have the systems that we do. And I do very much encourage you to um watch those films. I will get the name of them. It's like para- it's something paradise. And um definitely watch 13th. Highly recommend.
1: Oh yeah. If you haven't seen 13th yet. I don't even know what you're doing listening to this episode. Go watch 13th yes. and then listen to this episode. Yes.
0: And cry, bring tissues. Um because yes. <laughs> you will. And uh read uh the new Jim Crow as well. I think it's a oh, it should be taught in yeah. schools all the always.
1: Absolutely. So <laughs> um Michelle Alexander is an absolutely incredible researcher. Incredible. Absolutely, and it's it's
0: heartbreaking, like what they find it. And it seems like I think the heartbreaking part is it seems so obvious, but it's just that no one's looking, (laughs) you know, like no one's like, huh, wait a second. And so um, I I don't think there's one true answer to any of the issues just because it is such a complex and robust problem. other than like well, I mean, scrap it all together. I,
1: don't mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but like that's one of the big critiques of the prison industrial complex, right? That it has one response to the myriad type of crimes, social ills, threats to public health, etc. There's one response, and that can't possibly yeah be effective. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think and and I think that's the answer is really just does this work? No. Right. So. <laughs> Let's not do that anymore. <laughs> you Let's we gotta something else? Yeah. So I think abolition <laughs> for sure. Or just yep. like we need to, we need to figure out where like these, and I'll explain that. And next week I have a guest who's really explaining it as well. Um that we are not addressing the real problems. We're not addressing oh, the sources great. of these issues. Instead, we're just kind of glazing over them and and in. in, in causing more and, um, yeah, it's 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 insidious, honestly. And absolutely our systems aren't built for rehabilitation. Uh the people who are incarcerated are not given tools or education with the intention that once they return to society, they'll be able to live better lives. That's never the intent of this system. Uh mm-hmm. the prison system isn't even a band-aid, it is a weapon, it is a strategy. And the system works to get people, very specific people, in for profit and for control and they make it impossible to get out and stay out. Um, there's no end to what we could cover in this episode, <laughs> so it's going to be very long, and it's been very difficult to. Plan for because we could talk about how incarcerated people work for pennies, which can be considered a new form of slavery or indentured servitude at the very least. We could talk about how they are confined to spaces that are damaging to them physically, mentally, and spiritually. Uh, studies have been done explaining the mental damage of folks institutionalized. Um, there's a book I'll mention uh, later as well that talks about some of the, the mental effects that people have when they come back. Pascal will be talking about some of those things as well, Mm -hmm. and we could discuss the sexual assault or the overall assault and abuse on incarcerated people. We could talk about the stigma and demonization of people who are incarcerated, and therefore people now are like, well, you're less than, so... It doesn't matter what happens to you. Um, We could, uh, again, discuss the forced sterilization and other eugenics practices conducted in our prisons. We could cover our bail system, which is an oppressive tool that affects the lower class, imprisoning people because they are poor. And um, you'll also hear in next week's episode about how commissary prices have gone up. Like, Mm. it just continues to get worse. Um, And so we could, and... This was another thing that I was going to cover in this episode, (laughs) just like walking everyone through like why it took so long to get to this episode. I have been fighting very hard for it, but we could talk about Khalif Browder who was incarcerated on Rikers Island before he even stood trial. And during his time there spent 700 days in solitary confinement. And the damage was so severe and traumatizing that he took his own life two years after his release. We could talk about the other horrors of Rikers in and of itself and how it should be shut down. There's an op-ed on News 1 titled, Why is Rikers Island Still Open? And Why Won't New York City Mayor Eric Adams Accept the Help He Needs? Explains, Built to only hold 3,000 people, Rikers contains approximately 5,500 people and the pack cells in worsening deaths, abuse, violence, and illness are also evidence of how cash bail has been weaponized against the poor to deprive them of their rights. And as of July 2022, over 20 people had died while incarcerated at Rikers this year. And mind you, Rikers is specifically a pretrial detention center. Over 90% of those in the center are Black and brown New Yorkers, and they are people who have not been convicted of a crime. Like crime doesn't equal you should be treated this way. (laughs) Want that to be known? That doesn't mean that. But these people also have not been convicted of a crime. Like
1: the presumption of innocence. Yeah,
0: and the arguments that you could have by demonizing people who are incarcerated do not work here because they're literally just because they cannot afford bail. And last year, it was even declared a humanitarian crisis. And um, like I said, you'll find ways in our in our ways to help section resources to support the campaign to shut down Rikers. Um, it's going to be a really heavy ways to help section have your pick (laughs) pick one thing the year is not over you could do your one Mm -hmm. good deed okay um and honestly your half of your good deed is listening to this episode and learning um (laughs) all of this and more can be unpacked about our toxic and abusive incarceration system but this is the film analysis portion of our show. So let's unpack something that surprised me on my journey to find some horror prison content. Uh, so just a week before we set to record this episode, Kat and I decided to watch Jordan Peele and Henry Selleck's claymation film, Wendell and Wilde. And of course, uh, we knew that there was going to be more than whimsy to be found in Peele's film, but we weren't expecting this. It was like, I was like, what? So as I explained, the film is about two demon brothers trying to get to the land of the living, and they use a young girl cat to do so. But this film, as always, is about so much more. Wendell and Wilde at its core is about the school to prison pipeline in the prison industrial complex and for profit prisons. So about a third of the way through the film, I said to Ken, this film is about prisons. And then Kat immediately found several articles backing that up <laughs> like, while we were watching the film. Cause I was like, wait a second. Um, so Wendell & Wild is a hauntingly charming film with a beautiful cast of characters. I loved Wednesday, um, but I was really hesitant to watch it given Tim Burton's comments about how darker complexions don't work for his aesthetic. And this film Gross. laughs hysterically in that face. <laughs> it said i'm sorry what <laughs> which <laughs> complexions which people don't fit into this like creepy and charming aesthetic um because there are black characters mixed characters latine characters indigenous characters indigenous
2: characters
0: and each one of them was so unique and wonderfully suited for the claymation medium like they Like, their faces were designed for that. Like, it's so beautiful. Um, And it really was a pleasure to watch. It's not a subtle film in the slightest, which (laughs) we love. We love a film that just tells you what's going on. Um, It's like, you can't pretend you don't get it. (laughs) Like, we're not going to tiptoe around any issues, which is just a very real thing to do. Um, Even featuring a villainous character that is very much unsubtly stylized after Trump he's yes. got the hair he's got the tie <laughs> it's like I was like this is I Donald love Trump um <laughs> and the demons of the film aren't even the villains and the practice of interacting with those demons isn't even seen as villainous behavior there is sympathy for them and I'll explain like at no point is imprisoning in any form a good thing in this film <laughs> It's very much like nobody should be doing that, period, for profit or not. Like, it's just not. Um, And the film could have easily resulted in another Haunted Towns episode um, because it does really show um, a town haunted by this prison industrial complex and how they lose, you know, the heart of it because of these people who just want money. Um, So Karen, uh, Karen, (laughs) Kat's parents run a root beer brewery and it is the heart of the small town named uh, Rust Bank. And they care about their community and you know, immediately that they are going to be Disney parents because they're just too good to be true. (laughs) It's like, as soon as they show themselves (laughs) to be loving and they're like on the phone, they're like, no. And everyone's like, oh yeah, they're like a happy little family. I was like, oh no. (laughs) <laughs> RIP them already. So they get Disney parents. And uh you find out that they are continuously offered deals by the Claxons, which uh the Trump-esque man and his wife are the Claxons, and um to sell their property to make way for a new prison. And her parents and the town council refuse. And after an accident on a bridge results in the death of her parents, we learn that the orphan cat has acted out in her different homes and now finds herself as part of a rehabilitation program called Break the Sa- Break the Cycle back in her hometown. And when she arrives, the town is terribly changed since she was last here. Corp, run by the Klaxons, uh, has taken over everything and there was this terrible fire at the root beer brewery that resulted in the death of all the workers there and the eventual closure of the root beer brewery Um, and like all the (laughs) revenue, like this was a factory town in a way and now it's just, cloudy <laughs> and sad um Rest bank is but a shell of its former self and while at the school that hopes to fix her or at least look good for trying she discovers her connection to demons because cat is known as a hell maiden and she can commune with demons um which is like really cool because it it's never really seen as like, oh no, she's evil because she's a hell maiden. It's like, oh, she's cool. That's like a superpower. <laughs> it's like, oh, she can. I know. I
1: loved that. It was
0: just like, oh, yeah, she's not the only one. It's a great thing. I was like, that's rad. That's rad. Um, these devilish brothers, Wendell and Wilde, learning of her abilities, strike a deal with her to bring her parents back from the dead, and hijinks ensue because it's a child claymation film. <laughs> so uh, the other students at the school are quick to want to be Kat's friend, including the annoying but sweet trio of popular girls led by Claxon's own daughter. And further, there's a trans boy, Raul, who becomes an unlikely oh. hero and friends. And one of my favorite parts of this was that his identity was discussed a few times, but it never felt like a joke or problematic. It yeah. was very natural. Um, you learn by context clues and just like by them defending him so the school is an all-girls school and yet Raul is here so it's easy to quickly understand his identity um and it reminded me of um the heartbreakers the heartbreakers heart heart stoppers heart stoppers um <laughs> heart stoppers the queer really cute queer netflix show it's based on the graphic novels um but one of their friends it's an all boy school but one of their friends is a girl and she goes to a new school um but you learn oh, there's no strands um so i just love those where it's just like oh we don't you yeah. don't have to talk about it. Uh, Shabon Claxton misgenders him once and apologizes. Someone over the phone misgenders him and is corrected by his mother. And never once did Kat misgender him, nor did any of the villains. The demons often I call mean. him a boy. And I was like, enough said. <laughs> like, it was just like, it's that simple. It's literally that simple. If demons can do it. Yeah. <laughs> you. Like if, yeah, if demons can be like, look at this boy. <laughs> Whoa, cool. What, how? Oh. And then, of course, his mom being like, no, no, I have a son. What? Um, amazing. Love it. So uh, the Claxons hope to build a new for-profit prison in Rust Bank with small cells. This is to fit as many people as they can. And obviously not in, I mean, prisons aren't humane to begin with. This is just even worse. Um, and Rust Bank is so broken, they expect anyone who leaves the system will find themselves back in it. Like, once they get out, what are they going to do in Rust Bank? More crime, or whatever they think is deserving of putting them back in here. Um, further, the Claxons want to form their own second chance program, which will flood cat school with youth leaving the incarceration system, hoping this influx of traumatized and troubled teens will overwhelm the staff, resulting in recidivism, because those people are not equipped to help these children who need very specific help. that's not what it's designed for. It's not to help them. It's not to help give them a new uh, way of life or or support system. It's just, let's all put them in one place where they're just going to continue to get rowdy and feel invisible. Um, And so this is all in hopes of becoming even richer, period. And Pennsylvania has its own troubles with for-profit prisons. And I recommend another documentary, uh, Cash for Kids, which is very unsettling and horrifying about for-profit prisons. Here in Pennsylvania in his juvenile system it was really scary <laughs> It's was like if I saw that as a kid I would have been really like there's this one kid who just like his parents bought him a bicycle and it's just that they bought it from some other kid who had stolen it and so then his their kid just gets taken away and they oh tricked all of the parents to not be there during their trials like
1: oh my god
0: insane definitely watch it and again bring tissues <laughs> like if you want to get mad I can give you a lot of documentaries about this um in fact this film being not subtle this goal is so blatant that there's an entire conversation about it between siobhan and her parents uh where she says mommy daddy i know the truth about your prisons and they say what is that siobhan says well you make a pile of money for every prisoner you take so you pack them in like sardines provide crap food crap medical dangerous conditions and zero rehabilitation and the uh, dad says, I'm so proud of you, dear. And they say, that's our business model, exactly. Ziff is it's a good thing. Um, but it's literally in your face. <laughs> so uh, the biggest takeaway I found for this film was understanding the villains. Because at first you were to believe Wendell and Wilde or even their follow Buffalo Belter are the villains. The brothers lie to Kat and work to manipulate her into getting what they want. They want to fund uh, they want funding to build their own amusement park and their father imprisons them to, they believe, keep them from changing the current park system he runs for torturing folks. It's a kid's film. It's got amusement park in it, right? <laughs> um, and, however, the brothers become allies in the fight against the Claxons, and we learn their father was worried the brothers would come to the surface and be lost forever. And this is because all his other children, his other demons, were missing after coming up here. And we learn they'd been, you guessed it, imprisoned in capsules by a demon hunter and school staff person, Manberg. And uh, eventually he releases them. In the end... For in exchange, and even these demons deserve freedom. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I was like, this is such a mm. beautiful film, and it, in the end, it's a community coming together and fighting against this evil, um, it's feeling very vampires versus the Bronx, and yes. just super charming in that way, and just beautiful for them, all. like, they were always together, and such a great like system of people being there, and so for summarizing my, my section of nonsense, mostly me just complaining about how I can't really have a section, um, is to say that our incarceration system isn't broken. Okay, it was built this way for a reason, to oppress and for profit. And our systems do not encourage or equip those incarcerated with tools for rehabilitation. It segregates entire populations and relies on recidivism. Our systems are not addressing the causes or core issues of crime. It does not seek to prevent crime because it can profit off of it. It can continue to oppress because of it. And when, Sel- when Henry Selick chose to make the Claxons in their prisons the true villains, He was telling us that we need to focus on returning citizens, that the real horrors aren't in hell at all, but rather right here.
3: There's a lot of talk about putting more cops in the neighborhood's hardest hit by gun violence. We've been doing this for decades. Think about it for a second. Over the past 40 years, we've increased police budgets across the country by over $70 billion. And we haven't put a dent in street violence in major cities around the country. One problem with that equation in the first place is that cops are around to react to situations and deal with the aftermath, not to prevent them in the first place. Imagine if instead of sending more police into an area, we mobilized resources to the zip codes hardest hit by gun violence. The problems our communities face with gun violence are a result of race and class-based structural inequalities, not moral failing. A lot of gun violence springs from people in poverty filtering into the drug economy in pursuit of a middle-class standard of living. By diverting money from the police to the community, we could create guaranteed livable wage job programs, fixing up and beautifying the neighborhoods hardest hit by gun violence. Imagine if kids being tempted to work on the corner had the option to work a good-paying job fixing up their neighborhoods. They could clean up litter and illegal dumping, help with minor home repair for the elderly, and help beautify the public spaces in our neighborhoods. As part of this emergency mobilization of resources to the zip codes hardest hit by gun violence, we could also extend rec center and library hours in those neighborhoods so young people have positive places to go. We could also hire trauma counselors to help people heal and to help us break free from cycles of violence. We could treat gun violence like the public health problem that it is. Instead of investing in policing our people, let's invest in
1: helping them. Something nice and light. (laughs) yeah you know how it is (laughs) i I mean i I couldn't agree with you more i mean most of my section focuses on you know the neuroscience of you know trauma and isolation and you know the the environment of incarceration but i'm also coming at this as you know from an advocacy perspective and that's something that this is really hard to argue against is that prisons are just not just places no um they like as you said there is no incentive for them to reduce crime to improve public health low-income folks uh are worth more literally to the state if they're incarcerated than Mm -hmm. out in the community um and yes as you say they just um they don't do anything to address the core causes of crime. And I think a lot of times people hear, you know, movements for prison abolition and they think like, oh, you just want criminals to just go away scot-free, right? And actually people who care about prison abolition also care very deeply about justice. Mm -hmm. We just don't Mm -hmm. think that when someone, say, hurts someone or steals something or commits fraud, we don't think justice looks like locking them in a cage for a few years, exposing them to more violence and trauma, giving them no rehabilitation, and then sending them back out into society. That is not justice. That is not bringing anyone to justice, and it's not keeping anyone safe. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about how many soapboxes I'm going to go on.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you heard I was on a large one and just belted. And then I was like, oh, right. Yeah. And then there was a film. So, I mean, (laughs) that's like so much of this. And, um, you know, I hope everyone saddled in. It was just like a little teaser of what these two episodes are going to be about. But like, I just, you know, um, before we hop in, just I always like welcome people to do your own research. Don't just like, you hear things that you like you have been told to believe for a very long time and things like you, uh, this is how we've known the systems to work. And this is like a place of comfort sometimes like, okay, that's just how it works. That's how it's fine. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't change <laughs> like I, I think that's the biggest thing is that we should welcome and we should want change it makes people better to welcome and want change it makes society better um why stop improving like what <laughs> we don't have it done I promise we're not done we haven't we haven't figured everything out this is not We're not free of, you know, um, (laughs) any kind of uh, criticism. So take a look, take a listen. And um, if you have any resources, let us know.
2: How can we create systems that help victims and survivors of crime heal? For years, we've served up only punishment and incarceration as justice, and it's left many crime survivors feeling like their needs weren't met. We know from talking to people in our communities that crime survivors want to feel safe, and they want the people that harmed them held accountable. People want to understand why they were harmed and try to make sense of everything that happened. It's important for people who were harmed and their loved ones to have forums to express themselves and get answers. The current system, however, provides few options. People are either steered toward court or the parole board. A victim impact statement is usually the only avenue of expression given. And the only measure of justice is how many years someone will spend in prison or under court supervision. Instead, what if we took money that would be spent on prisons and created county-wide restorative justice programs that offer a different way to feel justice was done? These initiatives could offer trauma counseling and social services to people who are harmed. They could also provide counseling to the person that caused harm to find out what led them to harm others. After deliberate preparation and with the consent of the crime survivor, these programs could facilitate a meeting between all parties with community members there to support all involved. Through these meetings, crime survivors would be empowered to hold the people who harmed them accountable, giving them an opportunity to express directly and safely how it felt, as well as ask any questions and name their needs. Since we want to help turn things around, it could also provide a place where the person who did the harm could express what they need in their lives to change for the better. In the end, a restorative agreement could be crafted that would include a plan to make things right by the crime survivor, the community, and, just as important, to the person who caused harm themselves. We can have a system of justice that places all involved parties at the center of the solutions and promotes healing. It's time we invest in transforming members of our communities instead of incarcerating them.
1: Included a trigger warning for my section for suicidality, depression, um, isolation, and incarceration. Of course. Hey, I'm going to be hopping around a couple different topics because, as Gabe said, this is the prison industrial system is incredibly insidious, and it's rotten roots just has its fingers in, into to everything. Mm-hmm. Sorry to mix my, mess. my, 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 my metaphors. <laughs> um, there is something uniquely American about the United States' high rate of incarceration and low access to health care, including mental health care. The U.S. leads the world in incarceration rates with 5% of our population behind bars and hosts the largest number of incarcerated individuals. So the U.S. both has the highest incarceration rates and the highest abroad numbers incarcerated. We have about 2.2 million people incarcerated as of last year in this
0: country. That's so great.
1: Like it's gross. It's not cute. Um, as I said before, Philadelphia boasts the highest per capita incarceration rate of the 10 largest U.S. cities. I'm going to go into more in detail about the incarcerated Philadelphia population. But first, I'm going to start off a little bit more macro, and then we're going to get more detailed. Awesome. Research shows, uh, in fact, it's really well established that incarcerated populations are much more likely to have chronic, physical, and mental health conditions, as well as poorer health outcomes that last far, far beyond their release from prison. Mm-hmm. Too often, the prison industrial complex serves as one of the primary providers and mental health system in our society, which may not be so awful if jails and prisons were even remotely designed to be able to manage these challenges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <They're not. laughs> and when we look at the research, we actually see the opposite. In fact, for each year, a person... Uh, stays in prison, it takes two years off of that individual's life expectancy. One study compared a life expectancy of the U.S. against other high-income democracies and found that from 1891 to 2007, U.S. life expectancy would have increased by more than five years if it had not been for mass incarceration. That is the gravity that we are looking at. Wow. Um, And these countless studies support the hypothesis that high recidivism rates, meaning that when people go continually get arrested and sent back to jail and prison, it reflects a unmet mental health needs and services of individuals and communities. So I'm going to um, list off some facts just in case you weren't depressed enough. (laughs) Um, The majority of these these facts come from NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, as well as PrisonPolicies.org. So nationally in this country, about two in five people currently incarcerated have a history of mental illness, which is twice the rate as the average in this country. One in four people with what's called a serious mental illness or severe mental illness have been arrested in their lifetime, leading to over 200 million jail bookings of people with psychiatric disabilities every year. Mm. And even in a juvenile justice system, seven out of 10 youths, minors, um, are experiencing a mental health condition. One in four murders by police of civilians between 2015 and 2020 involved a mental health condition.
0: Mm -hmm. One in
1: four people with a serious uh, mental uh, psychological distress are in jails. 66% of people incarcerated in federal prisons report not receiving any mental health care while incarcerated, and that number goes up to 74% in state prisons. So that leaves a minority of people who are incarcerated or even receiving any sort of mental health care uh, Mm -hmm. ineffective and inadequate as it may be. Suicide is the leading cause of death for people in local jails, Um, 43 and 44% of individuals incarcerated in state prisons and local jurors, respectively, have a diagnosed mental illness, and over one in four individuals jailed three or more times in a year report having a moderate or serious mental illness. So all of this to say that people with psychiatric disabilities are far more overrepresented in institutionalized spaces than they are in the community. But demographic stats aren't the only ones we should be looking at. Um, and just a warning, this is going to be talking about some violence. Um, there was a recent article uh, from WITF, a subsidiary of NPR and um, PBS, where a mental health investigative journalist uh, discovered that it was common practice within Pennsylvania county jails to utilize pepper spray and stun guns and other violent means of force against incarcerated individuals experiencing a mental health episode. The investigators reviewed incarceral records, which were written by correctional officers. So I was want to make this clear that this are reports and data from the people who were utilizing the violent means. This is not word of mouth, it was somehow diluted or anything. This is coming from the correctional officers. When they reviewed these records, um, they they found that these records provided really candid details as to what led to these uses of force. And it was found that just 10% of these uses of force were used in response to a prisoner assaulting someone or threatening to assault someone. One in 10, that was... I mean, whether or not you believe that that is a righteous method to deal with physical threats, that happened 10% of the time. (sighs) The the investigation discovered there's far more likely that these incidents occurred because a prisoner was either attempting suicide, attempting to hurt themselves, or threatening self-harm. So we see very clearly from the records of correctional officers that physical violence is being utilized as a way to manage mental health episodes. Uh, While supporters of these techniques claim that they save lives, um, opponents, as well as human rights advocates, argue that they are inhumane and ineffective. So we have to ask ourselves, which is the chicken or the egg, Mm -hmm. right? Is it that this is the best criminal justice system? Yeah, this is the best tool that we have at our disposal to manage mental health systems. It's the best that we can hope for. Or do jails and prisons actually have an impact on one's mental health? And it turns out study after study, meta study after meta study Mm -hmm. shows that incarceration can trigger and even worsen symptoms of mental health. And these Symptoms don't just disappear once they re enter society. Mm-hmm. While, of course, every individual is different, research shows that indica- uh, excuse me, incarceration is linked to mood disorders, including major depressive disorder and bipolar disorder, as well as something called post incarceration syndrome, which is a condition very, very similar to PTSD. Mm-hmm. Even in the most humane of prisons, which you might find in, you know, Nordic regions, uh, many defining features of incarceration are still linked to negative mental health, including disconnection from family, isolation from community, loss of autonomy, boredom and monotony, lack of purpose, and unpredictability of your surroundings. Other factors detrimental to mental health include overcrowding, uh, exposure to various forms of violence, enforced solitude, or conversely, complete lack of privacy, insecurity about future prospects, including work, relationships, uh, as well as inadequate health services, especially mental health services. And unless you have a loved one who is incarcerated, it may be really easy to forget how far away you are from your family, from your community when you're locked up and the drastic effects that it can have. There was a study that was done in University of Georgia in 2018 that found that people who were incarcerated more than 50 miles from their home were more likely to experience depression, and another study found a high correlation between overcrowding and police suicide. And this says nothing of the effects it has on the incarcerated individual's family and community. So negative mental health effects can be experienced not just by those who have pre-existing mental health conditions and enter the justice system, but it can be experienced by those without a prior history of this. And this is in part due to what we call the psychosocial determinants of health. Um, This is where I kind of nerd out. Mm -hmm. um, A big part of my by my, uh, my master's degree. The World Health Organization defines the psychosocial determinants of health as the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. Uh, typically issues that go beyond the scope of traditional Western healthcare. They include factors like socioeconomic status, education, the physical environment you're in, your employment, uh, your social networks, as well as access to healthcare. So obviously incarceration is a negative force on all of these dimensions, but for now, let's focus on the environment of incarceration. As you said, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this. <laughs> yes. um, but in the environment of incarceration, the constant exposure to boredom and monotony, peppered with unpredictable bouts of violence, along with social isolation, poor health care, anticipation, anticipation of hardship and Stigma upon release as well as zero rehabilitation will have psychological effects because the human brain did not evolve to be adaptive to long term stresses with no resolution. Sometimes researchers call this allostatic load. Allostatic load refers to the cumulative burden of chronic stress and life events, and it involves the interaction of all different types of physi- physiological systems uh, various degrees of activation in the body. Mm-hmm. We all know about fight-or-flight response to acute stress, which is mostly good and appropriate because stress hormones in the body in the short term promote adaptation. Uh, this is how human brains evolved, right? Mm-hmm. Back in the, the Sierra when you were know, early human days, our major stress was because we were prey to major predators. So we would be in our community, a predator would come out. We'd run away. We'd gather. We'd escape from the the short term stress, the short term predator, and then we would find meaning. We're like, okay, so and so wasn't watching, or we didn't realize that it could do this. We would find meaning, and we would be able to move forward with new insights as a community, and it would then be resolved, right? But that mm-hmm. is not the environment that we live in in modernity, and it's not certainly not the environment that we live in when we are incarcerated. So um, in the sh- to to bring it home when environmental challenges and stresses exceed our ability to cope that's when allostatic overload ensues. Mm-hmm. So in other words short-term and manageable stress are adaptive for our brains but it comes maladaptive in the long term and there's no reprieve and there are physical Changes, physical damages in the brain that happen when there is no reprieve from constant stress and constant trauma. Neuroscience has been incredibly clear about what is necessary for the brain to thrive, right? We need clean air, clean water, warmth, sleep, physical movement, low stress, healthy diet, and social interactions, right? That's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. We know this. Um, Humans evolved to move our bodies and find meaning and belonging via our social interactions. Um, In fact, many believe that the famous Uh, ancient Greek tragedies were an unconscious collective way for us to heal from the constant trauma of war. Hmm. Again, as a a, uh, a podcast for another time, but like that is how deep uh, our, our social bonding is to healing from stress and trauma. And that's what I really want to bring home. So even if jails and prisons were not inherently violent places, the isolation alone would be enough to cause lasting psychological damage. And To understand how, we have to understand how stress and isolation affects the brain. The brain is, of course, the key organ that deals with stress, particularly the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex, which can undergo stress-induced structural remodeling. When the allostatic load is overwhelming, Mm. such as during the conditions of incarceration, this in turn alters behavioral and physiological responses, which again, obviously affects things like recidivism. So as an adjunct to uh, pharmaceutical therapy, if that's necessary, social and behavioral interventions, such as resi- regular physical activity and social support, reduce the chronic stress burden and benefit the brain and body health, as well as benefit our resilience, uh, which are in short supply. Brain, you're incarcerated.
0: There's none of that happening. <laughs> yeah, none of that is none obviously. Of obviously.
1: Yeah. Um, Being incarcerated is obviously an incredibly stressful experience. One of the most stressful experience, however, is solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. The stress of forced isolation can cause permanent damage to one's brain and therefore our personality. We saw that with Khalif Browder, Mm -hmm. who you mentioned. And again, it's a wonderful documentary about him. Living in solitary confinement is a grueling experience that damages the brain after just a few days. A 2000 study found that people were significantly more likely to develop psychiatric disorders while in solitary confinement than if they were housed in non-solitary units in prison and jail. In solitary confinement, the individual is rare housed in a room smaller than the average parking space. So I want to pause and I want everyone listening to imagine the last time you were in a parking lot. We can all probably bring up an image of how big a parking spot is. When you're forced into solitary confinement, you are stuck in a room smaller than that space. The space is about five by eight feet. Um, There is constant sensory stimulation. the, The lights are always on and there's always noise. There's high stress. There's disrupted sleep. Poor diet. There's no cognitive enrichment. This means that all of the ingredients for a healthy life have been removed. The isolation has long-term physical and psychological effects, such as increased morbidity and mortality, increased likelihood of depression, Social withdrawal, aggression, obsessive thoughts, decreased distance vision, which means that once you are released from prison, your distance vision is, has been decreased because your eyes have been so understimulated. You have been in a small space that not only your vision, but your ability to navigate spaces becomes uh, decreased and, and impaired as well. You People experience hallucinations, paranoia, psychosis, and, of course, the, the deteriorated ability to concentrate. Uh, this obviously is going to worsen any pre-existing mental illnesses you have and probably create Ones that weren't there in the first place. And this obviously increases recidivism. Mm -hmm. So if we are telling ourselves that prisons exist to decrease crime and recidivism and to improve public safety, we have to confront the way that actual outcomes are perpetuating and even creating cycles of harm. I'm not going to nerd out for too much longer. I do just want to bring home the physical damage that this does to the brain. This isn't some woo-woo, Gen X, you know, kid glove, hand-holding, you know, thing mm-hmm. that young people care about these days. This is science. This is data. This is empirical data that we can see with our eyes. So isolation and forced confinement affects our brain in four main ways. anatomically, biochemically, Uh, With inflammation and it affects our protective factors. So our brain's neurons require stimulation resulting from social interaction. So forced confinement uh, is going to change the size and shape of our dendrites. Dendrites are the part of our neuron where information reaches, enters the neuron. Uh, a healthy neuron is gonna have dendrites, with all these different legs, and it's busy and long and really complicated. A damaged neuron from isolation, trauma, and confinement is going to be really stingy, a really weak, maybe one dendrite with a few uh, arms sticking out from it. Again, it's very noticeable. Mm -hmm. Um, This deterioration is going to impact neurotropic factors that block neuron death, which is critical to the development, maintenance, and repair of our nervous system uh chronic stress and isolation reduces our brain's capacity to respond to inflammatory challenges which increases the uh, likelihood of illness which again is going to increase uh, the physical damage to our bodies all of this accumulates in decreased neuro and central nervous system repair in our body's natural processes trauma and aging this is not something that is unique to humans Non-human animals exhibit all of these same things too. In fact, uh, even when uh, lab animals are isolated and then brought back to general population, they are more aggressive, even with siblings, even with the animals that they grew up with and are incredibly familiar with and trust, they are more aggressive. We can see this echoed with human beings who are incarcerated. So beyond the uh, exacerbation and the formation of major mood disorders, Uh, including post-incarceration syndrome, exposure to incarceration, especially in the long term, can result in what are called institutionalized personality traits, which include distrusting others, difficulty maintaining relationships, difficulty making good decisions, um, issues with spatial uh, referencing and difficulties in social interactions, as well as feelings of social alienation. When you experience these things, again, these things don't magically disappear. When you leave prison, you bring this out to your community with you, and it has effects on the community that you're sent back in. I want to pause yeah. Yeah, before going to Philadelphia as a whole. I just dumped a whole bunch on you. Uh, tell me about what you're thinking. What like what thoughts of you have come into your head as I'm reading some of these statistics in this research?
0: Yeah, I... Um, the. So one of the biggest things that I'm going to talk about uh, next week with one of our guests is uh, the interaction of the community with people who are returning. And I think it's so important to understand that like their brains are literally changing, like to to understand yes. that trauma and to un- like you really have to come from a place of understanding and meet them where they're at and understand to have patience and just know like the challenge that it is for them to come back and try to you know get back up again go back into the like we expect people to just be able to just jump back in not understanding that there is literal like mental like barriers that are stopping them from being able to do that and like we often talk about in the ghouls like how when you're in traumatic environments and you're in that flight or flight response like you go 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 and it's not until you stop and all of that stuff is able to like rush into you that you'd see the effects really clearly because the whole time you've just kind of been moving on to the next thing or just trying to survive and get through it so when you finally stop having to just survive that's when it all just accumulates and you're like drowning in the entire, like all the things that you were just experiencing, and small things start to to cause um, stress where they wouldn't before because your oh, yeah. system just don't, they don't operate the same way. They don't understand uh, anxiety and stress in the same way. And so I think that like you know, I knew about a lot of like the, the mental um, aspects of it, not to this degree. Like, I'm so thankful for all this information. Um, Like I can hear like Kat geeking out about just like the statistics and having like all these resources and information, being able to point at studies to say, this is what it's doing. Um, But it's so clear, like when you're interacting with people um, that you know, and love and, and having that you know, distance from them is harming, uh, the family members as well. Like I know people who are, have been incarcerated, people close to me, loved ones been incarcerated. And I know the damage it did for us. And, um, I know other people that I've talked to. Someone I'm going to talk to next week. Um, she talks about her distance, um, from a family member and how it's been impossible to go see them and they're in this state it's just impossible to go see them, it's just not allowed. And so I think it really is um, so intense and complex and just like, I really think learning and understanding is really the first step to be able to find the compassion and patience to help those communities who are so severely harmed by these systems.
1: Absolutely, because you know when we're talking about mental health, we're not just talking about people with diagnosed, you know, psychiatric disabilities. Uh, all of this comes in trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, it, even if you have a, a parent who's incarcerated, like that causes trauma. It's, it's an adverse childhood experiences. All the studies on on the ACE studies, uh, a, ACE the ACE studies, mm-hmm. um, adverse childhood experiences, and we know again, this is a unpopular thing sometimes in uh you know uh general populations to, to maybe use a, a, a bad metaphor um but we we have this um idea that bad people commit crimes mm-hmm. right um and it can't possibly be that hurt people hurt people right and that one of two of the main drivers of violent crime is uh, lack of resources and trauma. So, if you grow up in a violent household, or if you grow up, you know, as a black man in America, as a trans child in this country, like you are going to be experiencing different levels of trauma, which are going to make it harder for you to make pro-social behavior, uh, behavioral choices. That is not that individual's fault. It is the fault of how society treats them. So a lot of this stuff starts in childhood. Mm-hmm. If we want to reduce populations in prisons, we need to invest in our children, not just, you know, the rich, happy, you know, white kids. We need to invest in all of our children mm-hmm. um, because it is it is it's a cycle of trauma. It's a cycle of harm.
0: Mm-hmm. It's that school to prison pipeline that, exactly you know, the Wendell and Wilde was trying to address as well. It's like, if you exactly. start there, you know that it's infecting all the way up. And that it's just going to keep going like you don't you can't there's no hope for the future because our future is already infected.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, again, this is what I, I, I well, this is not what I did my exact master's uh, thesis on, but I'm going to be drawing on a lot of research that I use from it. Um, and I, I interviewed. Uh, correctional staff, I interviewed behavioral staff, I interviewed a lot of leadership at the Philadelphia Department of Prisons, um, I interviewed social workers, I interviewed people who were incarcerated. Um, and so, this is where a lot of these statistics are coming from. They're coming from the people who have lived experiences inside the walls. So as I said, Philadelphia is the most incarcerated city and the most incarcerated country in the world. We have seven out of 1,000 citizens behind bars and approximately three quarters of the Philadelphia jail population wait six months before getting their day in court. Yes. So again, I could be picked up for a crime because maybe they're looking for someone who is white, uh, feminine presenting, you know, has shoulder length, black hair, you know, et cetera. And I maybe don't have money for bail or for anything other than a public defender. It is most likely that I am going to be stuck in jail waiting for my day in court. Mm -hmm. It means I haven't been found guilty, right? And that, what does that mean? It means I've lost my job, mm-hmm. right? It means I've lost connection with my community. How am I supposed to pay for these bills, right? Mm-hmm. It, it really creates a system where you, you cannot win. And as you said before, it is not di- designed to do so. Um, and when I surveyed uh, formerly incarcerated folks and people who were incarcerated in the Philadelphia jails, one of the most common things that they said uh, was tied to the critical gaps they weren't getting uh, that was going to lead to successful re-entry was mental health. Other uh, factors included housing, employment, a substance abuse and recovery, and healthcare access. So you can see all of that is really tightly related. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to the people who uh, are leaders at the Philadelphia County Jail, 16% of the folks incarcerated there have, again, a diagnosed, quote-unquote, severe mental illness. Uh, that is terminology that terminology that they use, um, mm-hmm. severe mental illness. Um, so that that's 16%. So you could have moderate undiagnosed, right? Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of people that are not captured in that 16%. Um, So again, while the results uh, of my study were a little bit tangential to this podcast, it focused on all the health needs, not just psychological. um, There was some research that I wanted to share. I analyzed the zip codes of people who were incarcerated at the facility of the County Jail, and I found that, that there were six zip codes that made up over one third of the population hmm. at the jail. And of those six, uh, three encompassed almost, over 20%. So, it's really, really focused. It's like yeah. criminality, quote unquote, is not evenly distributed across Philadelphia. It is hyper focused on certain populations, right, in certain areas. Um, and that, so, you kind of, the, 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 the common thing is, well, those people, mm-hmm. right? That's something, that's something that's wrong with those people living in those zip codes. Um, but, you yeah. know, it turns out if you look at Data, um, which like I, I, am a data person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I then compared those zip codes to a map of Philadelphia's medically underserved areas (MUAs), mm-hmm. and this was a report put together by the Philadelphia Department of Health. This is not something that I personally put together. The the, the report is publicly available online. Google Philadelphia medically underserved areas for more info, highly recommended. But this comparison that I did of the zip codes of people who were incarcerated in the county jail and people who live in underserved areas showed that 80% of individuals incarcerated in Philadelphia jails come from medically underserved areas. And this statistic was corroborated by the Philadelphia Department of Prisons. Mm. I'm going to say that again. 80% 80% of people incarcerated in our jails come from medically underserved areas. Now I don't know about you, Gabe. I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. Right?
0: At some point, at some point you're like,
1: you know what? And I, I know this is mostly focused on like the, the mental health and psychological effects, but I also want to uh, bring up that almost three-quarters of individuals at our Philadelphia jails. Uh, struggle with substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, About a third are in there for drug charges, uh, but three quarters live with substance abuse issues. And when you live in a medically underserved area, if you have chronic pain, if you have any number of of, uh, health issues and you don't have access to healthcare, you are probably going to result to underground methods of dealing with that chronic pain, Mm -hmm. with those immediate health needs, because you have to live your life. You Mm -hmm. have children, you have bills to pay, right? Mm -hmm. So you are going to do whatever you have to do in order to live your life. And so that is something that I think is a a huge spit in the eye Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. this concept of bad people do bad things. And what's worse is that like Philadelphia as a city, is host to some of the best medical suppliers and and hospitals in the country, including Penn Medicine and Jefferson. But these assets are not distributed evenly across the city, which opens up all these questions around incentivization of Mm -hmm. who deserves healthcare in this country. The best served uh, zip codes medically in Philadelphia have 10 times as many primary care physicians within a short drive than underserved areas. The same report commissioned by the Philadelphia Department of Public Health found that the ratio of patients to primary care providers within a short drive is about 900 to 1 citywide, but in underserved areas, it's almost 3,000 to 1. That is Mm -hmm. the scope of the discrepancy of in-access. So it's not oh, they just have to drive an extra 10 minutes, it is that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. 900 to 1 in well-serviced areas, 3,000 to 1 in underserviced Mm -hmm. areas. And what's even more frustrating, Dave, (laughs) is that the data suggests that the city has enough primary care providers to serve a city with a population of this size. It's a distribution and Mm -hmm. it's an equity Mm -hmm. issue across the city. So it becomes very apparent very quickly that one's chances of experiencing incarceration and the exacerbation of mental illness drastically goes up just based on the zip code that you were born in. So I have a lot more to say on this, but I'm going to conclude <laughs> so we can have a conversation. Um, we often think of incarceration as experience with a beginning and an end. However, when we look at the research, we can clearly see that the effects of incarceration on an individual's Physical and mental health long lasts long after they've walked through the prison gates and back into society. It's hard not to come to the conclusion that not only do prisons not keep us safe, but that incarceration is, is not an, an acceptable experience for, I would say, pretty much anyone, mm-hmm. but particularly in terms of neurological development, resolving traumatic experiences, promoting pro-social behavior, or ensuring one's human rights.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, I, you know, hearing some of those things, it, it reminds me of previous episodes we've done, not uh, obviously not on the incarceration system, but just thinking of some of the episodes in which we've covered medical situations. So we covered like organ donation and how mm. um, it's in specific areas, they are less likely to be on the donor list or have access to it because there's a time limit for how long they can keep that organ on ice. So your distance from the hospital to get that organ risks your life even further. And people can just pack up and be able to move closer to this hospital on the chance that they get this organ. And so that also, you know, fun, funnels um, people into into certain areas. Um, but it like that and and just i think it's so interesting to see like the comparison like when you just take a like a step back and look at these environments and start asking questions of like what isn't being seen here like what are these people lacking um and i feel like it really is easy to once you start putting those pieces together you start looking at it and putting those maps over each other it is really not hard it is not hard yeah. to see in the least, like you just have to look, you just have to bother with caring for a minute.
1: Yeah. And the research is out there. And so you have to wonder if there's incentives to ignore it. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which, is, you know, is is, um, kind of the, the heart of, of what we we're trying to cover in this is, is really there's a lot of profit to be had from keeping people. there, And and that profit looks different. It could be a financial profit. It could just be um, a way to keep certain communities oppressed um, and, you know, not able to uh, better themselves or make a change because they're trying to just get out of the hole that you keep digging for them. Um, And, like, I'm really thankful for the specific like mental health but also physical um uh, facts that you brought into it because um one of the things I had originally wanted to cover is I read this book um titled um uh savage appetites um by Rachel Monroe which is more about women's obsession with true crime and there's four Mm. stories so one is about like this woman who existed at a time where women couldn't be detectives and so she helped in different ways and she oh, created cool. yeah it's it was, it's pretty interesting um and it's definitely coming from the lens of someone who finds the true crime community to be pretty toxic which i agree i've definitely talked about it before i was a former recovering <laughs> true crime addict i could speak on those issues um but it's like And that's not to say that true crime, you know, like uh, armchair sleuths have not done some really amazing things like Michelle McNamara. Like, we would not, you know, be able to lock up certain criminals if it weren't for some of these folks. Um, And there's also the fact that, like, in the true crime community, we know how sloppy and ill-equipped and problematic the police force can be when it comes to crimes and just how often they get things wrong or just ruin evidence or just you know, not take people seriously. So those, those things I can, you know, understand that there's this whole other fascination with (laughs) true, like with criminals that like murderers um, that you could really uh, look down on, but there's one particular story and it's about um, the Paradise Lost folks. um, One of the boys from that um, case. And it was kind of this exploration because he was incarcerated when he was very young, he was a teenager. And then he was incarcerated all throughout his adulthood before they were able to release him. And there was this whole discussion about how, you know, like he had, his peripheral vision didn't work. He had short-term memory loss. He like had all these different health issues that all of it, like I was reading that and that was my first time actually like sitting there and thinking and being like, That we don't talk about that enough. We do not talk about like, of course, like (laughs) once you, once you hear it, or once you, someone tells you about it, you're like, of course that would happen. Like if you're trapped in this box and you only have this much room to interact with, of course, your, your brain is going to stop using all of those pieces of it. And it just doesn't need it anymore. Or um, the aggression too, like all those pieces really fit into it. And I think the biggest thing that we're finding with what you like this thread <laughs> that I was seeing through like um incarcerated people's people with um uh, mental illness severe mental illness or any um substance uh use all of those are that we have this villainization of them there is this just mass understanding or labeling of these specific communities that allows people to continually abuse them and see them as less than. And so then they homelessness can get away as well.
3: with
1: it. Yes. Homelessness as well. Yeah. About a th- 30% of people in the Philadelphia County Jail are, are uh, in a constant state of homelessness. Um, a lot of the behavioral health specialists actually said that if they could wave a, wave a magic wand, and fix anything, it would be the housing situation, because that more than anything was such a predictor of recidivism
0: mm-hmm. well, because it's like you need that and that that has such a complex thing to it, right? Like you need a house to get your i d to get yeah. your v a benefits to get a job, like and then to make money like it is this core like to have a home, which is a basic necessity that everyone should be should have regardless of of who you are like every that's just plain out and so it's such a core piece of what people are missing and there's also like um next week I'll talk I talked to two folks about it but there's also a technological divide for people who were incarcerated in the 90s and coming out now the world is entirely different and that's a whole new obstacle and because the world keeps adapting and changing and we take it for granted that you don't stop and think about what are the challenges, what are the hurdles and the boundaries that they're going to have um, that our system is just designed to to keep those in place because we don't deserve like people just don't think they deserve any support.
1: And there's such a. a- profit maker for some people. And I don't know where the money goes. Like it certainly doesn't go towards services for incarcerated folks. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the systems that the computer systems that, that, uh, you know, medical staff and behavioral health staff have to use, they're ancient
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and they, they don't, they're complete. All the departments in incarceration are siloed, right? Correctional does not speak with behavioral, does not speak with medical, does not speak with everything is siloed right and so there is no integration there is no human experience you're just you're your your cattle pretty much yeah
0: there's no understanding of the individual it's like Correct. who is this person what are they coming in here with like in any aspect, right? Do they have like physical things that we need to be accounting, like considering when we interact with them, like you see so many horrific instances of, you know, corrections officers interacting with someone who might have a physical um, disability or something that is unseen, right? And them interacting with them trigger something and then we end up losing a life for, and for what? Yeah. Because there's no communication.
1: Yeah, people with disabilities are the number two minority group to be on the receiving end of police brutality. I see articles all the time in Philadelphia of, um, particularly like deaf individuals, are often shot and killed by the police because the police aren't trained mm-hmm. uh, in in that sort of thing. And you know, I think that there's there's also the case that witnessing incarceration also has a psychological impact. Right? It is also harmful for the correctional staff, in the same Mm -hmm. sort of way that you know uh uh, uh, white supremacy is harmful for white people it's it's bad for our souls Mm -hmm. it's harmful for correctional facilities the people that are in charge of dehumanizing these individuals it hurts them as well on some level
0: Mm -hmm. because they have to take that home right so you have to like you have to hold on to these ideas and this understanding of these people so that you can live with yourself and so that you can continue Mm -hmm. your job like you can't do that and also be like and that's why it's really hard to argue that you can fix a system from inside because you have to continue that system in order to keep your sanity because like otherwise you are wrong otherwise you are harmful as well you are also a part of this bad system and it's really hard to reconcile that um when you have to get up and do every day. So um, all that to say, (laughs) it's incredibly complex. Like, you know, I knew this episode was going to be a struggle and I am so thankful that you were here um, to be able to unpack it and, and start the conversation because there really is like... We, you know, we, we we are trying to pick one kind of avenue, which is why we wanted to talk about the mental health aspects of it, um, but there's just so many different things, and they're really just all piling on to each other, and so... Um, yeah, anyone who's, who's, who's listening, I hope this is a good little fire starter for you. I hope it really inspires you to to do some research. Like you said, we always um, provide our resources so you can look into it yourself. If you're like, whoa, that doesn't sound right. Look it up, read it. And then how much it sounds right. And then, you know, you know, hopefully that'll inspire you to try to help and change the system. And um, if like, Like we welcome, you know, thoughts and feelings about the system if you know someone who's been incarcerated if you um, If you have been incarcerated and you want to talk about like issues that you've experienced or You know just one event on our YouTube. That's also allowed um, (laughs) You you know how we work uh, always, you know with uh, the understanding of it being a very um, a a place of love and understanding right Um, and Yeah, I. (laughs) Is there any
1: last last thoughts that you want to say, Pascal? Um, I think I just I want to say that, you know, the United States way of of doing it is not the only way of doing it. You know, Um, there is one prison in Norway. It's called Halden prison. It's called the most humane prison in the world. Um, They focus on rehabilitation, not punishment, where, you know, every um, person who is housed there, they have giant windows in their room, they have privacy, they have locks on their doors, they make their own meals, meaning they they have you know, sharp objects and Mm -hmm. and they have TVs and they have sports and they have, um, none of the staff carry any kind of weapons. They're all trained in like social work. Um, there's no cameras in cells. There's no cell, those cameras in the hallway or in common rooms, there's workshops and all these things. And they have some of the lowest recidivation rates in all of Europe. So, I don't want people to think that like, well, this is the way it just is, Mm -hmm. you know, you kids these days just... You're too idealistic. And it's not just the way it is. There's lots, lots and lots of different, like there's literally art in that museum, in that, um, they call called the museum, in that prison, right? (laughs) There's Moroccan tiles and huge story high, uh, you know, mosaics and murals and things like that. Um, And it actually focuses on rehabilitation, pro-social behavior and skill sets. And it has a good outcome. Yeah,
0: because it's like, they want those people back. They want them to become, they want them to come back and they want them to be able to contribute to society and to feel like they are human. And I think that's like yep. the core issue. They even think about like their surveillance aspect of that, like constantly being surveyed like that has to do a whole nother level of psychological damage of never feeling alone, never feeling like you are with your own thoughts and unless you're put into solitary confinement, which has its own issue, like all of those. Yeah, I can't
1: um <laughs> yeah you're both isolated yet have no privacy yes. it's it's a maddening ex- experience to have to go through day in and day out people who haven't experienced it myself included really have no idea yeah
0: yeah yeah there's so much of there is no privacy there is no right to your own body and to your own space and understanding of, of of who you are and it's something that we take for granted like there's so much that we discussed today where it's just like as someone who's out here I take it for granted every day. Um, yeah, definitely look into other systems. If you know something you want to share, please let us know reading further reading, things to watch. You know, if you watch Wendell Wild, what did you think? Um, any of those things, we we welcome. You can always shoot us at email at the at gmail.com. Um, we can provide some you know resources to get in touch with Pascal if you have questions. And then, um, it's uh,
1: made clear. I love talking about this stuff. (laughs) So,
0: if anyone wants to reach out to me,
1: you will not be bothering me. (laughs) Yes, yes,
0: please do. Um, that's you know one of our metrics for success is if we get interaction from people, if you know it said something to someone and um, we can change someone's point of view or at least enlighten or inform someone, we really really cherish that. Um and be sure to stay uh to tune in next week for those special interviews. We're closing out the year with and um don't get married. Go eat your kids.
1: <laughs> so um okay, bye. Bye. bye.